Welcome everybody to another episode of Beyond Psychedelics. Today, really excited. We're speaking again with Dr. Curran and the focus of the conversation is on the future of psychedelic assisted therapy um, and neuromodulation. And we're specifically going to be focusing in on TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, as well as ketamine and ketamine infusion therapy. Really glad you're here. Dr. Curran, welcome. Thank you, Sebastian. I appreciate it. And I'm very excited to talk about these wonderful treatments. There's so much to share. And I, I think you know, having a conversation about what exactly they are and opening it up to that discussion is extremely important because there's so much out there, right? So uh, it's 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 definitely something that I think there's a needed conversation. Yeah, go ahead. So let's kick it off with with you having a background in TMS and having run clinics for a number of years. Um, what is TMS for somebody that's never heard of it before, and what's what kind of impact is it having right now in the mental health space? When patients go and Google TMS, are going to see two things pop up. One's transportation management systems, which is for trucking. That's not what we're looking at, right? Uh, which I've had patients come to me and say, uh, we're talking about transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy. It's a very, very, very effective and unique form of neuromodulation. And let's just use the word neuromodulation for now, because that, that kind of opens up the umbrella of what we're talking about collectively with ketamine and TMS and other treatments. But to, to, to kind of give you a better understanding, TMS, it's a non-invasive uh, brain stimulation technique used in the treatment of various mental health conditions, um, particularly uh, major depressive disorder, as well as other indications as well with anxiety that are you know, off-label treatments. There is some FDA clearance for OCD. The efficacy with TMS for disorders inclusive of depression anxiety, OCD, PTSD, bipolar, autism. There's a lot of data, a lot of, of research that supports the use of it for these other indications as well. Coveredly, uh, sorry, sir, uh, currently it is covered by insurance for depression and OCD, but we're seeing a lot of indications come up in terms of what it can be covered for and how coverage is changing. Um, as far as what it does and how it works, what TMS is doing is using a magnetic field to stimulate a certain part of the brain, specifically this frontal cortex for depression. So what ends up happening is a patient during the TMS session will sit in a comfortable chair. Um, they'll have an electromagnetic coil placed in their cow, uh, scalp. And typically this, again, over that prefrontal cortex, that coil will emit this magnetic pulse through the scalp and the skull and it induces these electrical currents that go into the brain. And these pulses actually end up modulating neural activity in these targeted regions. So what ends up happening is you have this influence of the functioning of these brain networks. There's a more of a connectivity that takes place. And to kind of understand how TMS really is, you know, making an impact, we have to understand what depression is, right? Depression is this disorder of connectivity. It's the brain not working as efficiently as it's supposed to in terms of traffic. Traffic is slow. It's uh, think of the symptoms of depression, right? Feeling uh, not interested, hopeless, tired, can't concentrate, right? Feeling low, feeling hopeless, all that, all that stuff. Something, something that's very slow or lethargic, if you will, in terms of activity in the brain. And we've seen TMS increase some of that neural activity and it help with mood regulation. Wow, sounds incredible. Sounds like it's shifting everything now. You said electromagnetic pulses. Is this anything like um, ECT? That's a good question. So ECT, completely different. I always tell patients, think of TMS as a software update and think of ECT as a hard reset. And the reason I explain it that way is because TMS is non-invasive. So we're not, 
you know, we're not doing anything in terms of anesthesia, no surgical procedure, simply very outpatient, the very simple, easy to do, very accessible and very convenient. Whereas ECT requires you to undergo anesthesia, it is invasive. And the difference between the two, primarily speaking, in terms of mechanism of action is ECT, we're trying to literally induce a seizure. That's what it is. Electrical convulsive therapy, we're inducing a seizure to this hard reset on the brain. Now, I do want to speak on this. ECT is one of the most effective treatments um, for depression. It is the last line in terms of somebody not responding to conventional medications, counseling, TMS, ketamine, whatever the case is. When you go down that path and there's nothing, nothing is helping you and you suffer from treatment-resistant depression, ECT comes up next in line. Now, as far as the differences, again, we're inducing a seizure with ECT. With TMS, we're using medic frequency to create this neural activity. And one thing that's really important is with ECT, we can have side effects. We can have amnesia. So when I say hard reset, think of you powering your computer down if it's frozen. What happens if you don't save your files? You can lose them, right? So that's why I say hard reset. It's You're literally having this amnesia, if you will. Whereas with TMS, the side effects are very minimal, maybe some mild scalp discomfort, if anything at all. Got it. So somebody can easily go into a TMS session and not have to wait until they come at any sort of anesthesia. They can leave right away. They can leave. They can go back to work. Quite often patients during our, our, our treatments would come in during the lunch break or before work or after work. Um, it never interfered with being able to get back to the daily routine. The one thing that kind of stood out to me though was the time of day you're doing TMS because if you're coming in the morning and you're not having anything in your system to eat or drink, you're calorically depleted, you're not nourishing your body, that can play a role in things because it is a brain workout, if you will. I always tell patients that, you know, anything we do from a, from a brain treatment perspective is your brain kind of working itself out or going to the brain gym. So make sure you have the right hydration, the right nutrition. But yes, to answer your question, there's no there's no limitations on what a patient can and can't do before and after uh, with TMS. And it is pretty well tolerated. You know, individuals can resume normal activities immediately after a session. And like I said, the common side effects that we do see are general mild scalp discomfort or maybe a headache the first couple of days because your brain's getting used to it. Um, as far as the headache goes, think about your brain going to the gym, right? If we go to the gym after a long time and you haven't gone, what's the first thing you feel? You feel sore. So I always tell patients, your headache is just your brain telling me I'm a little sore from this workout. But the more you do it, the more you get used to it, the easier it becomes to to to, to undergo. Well, well, how long has, has TMS been actually been operational for or being yeah. used for? I would do these TMS trivia questions with some of our patients just to kind of, you know, have fun with them. And one of the cool things was looking at the history of how long this has been around. There's actually a picture from like the early 1910s of this old researcher, this guy, he en ended up, you know, putting these round magnets on his head. Um, his head is in, obviously, you know, in the middle of these magnets, but he had like five or 10 of them stacked up and they induce this current. And this is, you know, over a hundred years ago. So we knew then neuromodulation can do something. Actually, the ancient Greeks used stingrays to use them as anesthesia for for childbirth. Right. So we what? knew neuromodulation that and and this and and there's understanding that stingrays that there's a little magnetic uh, charge in some of these little stings that can occur, or from you know using uh, uh, eels or whatever. There's a lot of neuromodulatory history that we've understood for thousands of years. So. Neuromodulation goes way back. Um, as far as the history of TMS, right? Yeah. Um, as far as the, the history of TMS, in 1985, Sir Anthony Barker himself from the, from the UK understood that we were able to do something from a symptomatic standpoint for mental health patients using 
these magnetic pulses at a certain power and a certain pulse width. And that's really important because how often we deliver the pulses and the, the time in between the pulses actually has a huge clinical impact. So we knew that. In the 90s, the FDA was coming out with some research uh, or, or using some of the research in clinical trials all the way up to 2000. In 2008, the FDA had cleared TMS for major depressive disorder. In 2013, insurance coverage started coming out rapidly, commercially speaking, for TMS. In 2017, we've seen uh, TMS be cleared for OCD. So, you know, now in 2023, we're just, we're literally just scratching the surface and it's extremely exciting to see where this can go. Wow. Wow. So it started back in 1910, but here we are 2023 and, and insurance is finally covering you from uh, depression and OCD. Incredible. I mean, I think of uh, Nikola Tesla when he first started to use magnets to generate electricity. And now yeah. here we are being able to, to use it to neuromodulate our brains. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to throw one thing in there, Sebastian. If you think about it, we always say depression um, or mental health disorders are a chemical imbalance. How many times have we heard that before, right? Mm -hmm. you know, it's, oh, it's, a, it's this chemical imbalance is taking place. The reason we've been able to understand that we can use electricity or magnetic frequency to alter our brain chemistry is because our brain with a mental health disorder is actually due to an electrochemical imbalance. Our brain works off chemical components and energy-based components and combined that is where the imbalance comes from wow wow so using the electromagnetic being able to bring it back online and imbalance right, right. incredible okay yeah. so what right now is um you mentioned the depression and ocd those are the ones that are seem to be the most uh used symptoms is there anything else that tms can support sure yeah um you know so one one thing that i think that we are seeing more and more is the element of performance enhancement for specific mental reasons, increasing concentration, increasing, you know, the mental energy levels, if you will. But as far as what we're seeing from a symptomatic standpoint for TMS, what we're using it for in conjunction with MDD and, and OCD or major disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder, there's a significant amount of data that supports it for anxiety-based disorders as well. The certain level of frequency, certain amount of power, um, how much you know, how, how activating the treatment can be versus how stabilizing it can be. And I, I mentioned that specifically because to answer your question, if you think about it, when somebody has a coil placed on their head for depression treatment, the frequency is a little bit higher than what we do, would do for somebody with anxiety treatment. So think of it this way. When somebody is depressed, the brain has slowed down. What ends up happening is we want to increase activity in that brain. We want to increase the amount of of activation that's taking place. So when we give somebody a depression medication like Lexapro or Adderall, it's a very activating effect. Whereas somebody who has anxiety, we want to give them something that's something that's more mood stabilizing. So it's a lower frequency effect. We're trying to slow things down or stabilize. That's why we give somebody Xanax or benzodiazepines for anxiety. We want to slow that activity down. So what with TMS, what we've understood is depending upon the power, how activating or how high the frequency could be can create this neural activation or stimulation, if you will. And the lower the frequency creates more of this stabilizing effect. So we can target multiple conditions, um, ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, anything that can come along those lines. Um, that's kind of what we're seeing in terms of, of using it for off-label indications. Ooh, sounds like there's possibility to explore down the road as everything continues to, to emerge. So, okay, cool. Now let's, let's, Transitioning into, into ketamine, because from my understanding, it's similar to TMS, but it's also different. Um, we have neuromodulation with magnetic frequency to be able to spark or to reduce the activity in the brain. 
How about ketamine? What is ketamine? How does it work? How is it different and similar to TMS? So ketamine, um, just to kind of give you some background on ketamine and, and, and let's not forget, you know, uh, we've heard about ketamine being a drug, right? A street drug or used for recreation purposes. Yes, it's been used recreationally, but ketamine actually is something that's been used for years in the military, in, in the ER setting. And one of the reasons it was used was because it creates this level of sedation, pain management, and for patients that were agitated or suicidal. So ketamine has a, a very lengthy history in terms of us using it clinically. But as far as what ketamine is, it's it's a medication uh, that belongs in the class of drugs known as disassociative anesthetics. And uh, as I mentioned, it was originally developed as an anesthetic. It was commonly used in veterinary medicine. So our, our poor pups and, and cats and pets and <laughs> were being exposed to ketamine for years. But in the, in the recent past, what we're seeing is that it's gained attention for its potential therapeutic benefit in mental health. Just to kind of give you an idea of, of what we're seeing is that for treatment-resistant depression, for somebody extremely suicidal, the usage of ketamine has been extremely helpful and effective comparative to conventional medications. And we can deliver ketamine essentially a multitude of ways through intramuscular ketamine, which does have a higher bioavailability, but the efficacy is not as high as somebody doing intravenously. We said intravenous ketamine to be a little bit more effective. Um, and then there's also the nasal spray or spravato, which is esketamine, an anomer of, of the ketamine molecule itself um, that's used as well. I do want to say that there is this, this understanding that ketamine is this kind of quick fix, conventionally speaking, and it's not. It's a treatment. It's not a cure. And I want to reemphasize that as much as I can because we have to make sure we conventionally keep that train of thought consistent. And and I feel like that also ties in as well with TMS, where it's not just sitting in a chair for 20 minutes and you're out of nowhere all good. No, right. it's it's that, that consistency, which if you haven't listened yet to the episode where we started to talk about tracking data and regarding uh, patient outcome, really supportive to know what's working for you versus what could be working for somebody else. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so with ketamine, you mentioned that it's really supportive for people dealing with any sort of um, like suicidal ideation. Why is it so supportive specifically for that population? Well... The, as I mentioned before with TMS and ECT, right, we mentioned that ECT is down the line in terms of what works for a person who is not responding to conventional treatment. When we look at, you know, ketamine, it, it's, it's added to the umbrella of treatment options, but because of the treatment resistance that we see with conventional medications and even with TMS in some cases, we're understanding that, you know, treatments like ketamine and ECT are showing a better efficacy for those suicidal patients because we're targeting a certain level of neurotransmitter release. And ketamine specifically, though, let's kind of talk about that. And, and this actually applies to, to, to TMS as well. There's something called brain-derived neurotropic factor. It's this protein, if you will, that kind of increases the structural integrity of your brain. So what we've understood is that when we increase BDNF or brain-derived neurotropic factor, this actually has a, a, a antidepressant effect on the brain, but also creates this um, level of, of consistent neural activity. So when we look at ketamine, we understand that we're affecting these receptors. Essentially, we're just something called these NMDA receptors. We're trying to essentially block them so we can increase a certain level of neurotransmitters called glutamate. So with TMS, we can increase certain levels of serotonin and, and dopamine. But with ketamine, we're talking about glutamate, which is a very excitatory uh, neurotransmitter or brain hormone, if you will. And glutamate is actually one of the most abundant neurotransmitters, our, our nervous system in terms of our, our central nervous system. So one thing we understood is that if we're increasing glutamate, 
which is strictly correlates to memory and learning, what we're doing is we're creating this uh, level of neural activation. And because we're increasing the most abundant neurotransmitter that's available, we're trying to improve that process of episodic memory, learning, mood regulation. And this actually leads to this neuroplastic environment that's kind of changing what your brain, uh, essentially how it's wired. Neuroplasticity, that's the common takeaway. We can change that with TMS and ketamine as well. Mm, so incredible. I mean, you make you think of the field of epigenetics and how this isn't, I mean, related with that to be able to create a sense of neurogenesis because, and, and this is a question that like now comes up for me. So this, you have this potential to learn more as you're mentioning, where we're, we're tapping into the, the, the chemicals in the brain that allow for learning. Is that what allows for somebody that may be depressed to kind of open up and start to experience maybe a new potential because they're, sure. they're opening to learning more? hundred percent. And look at it from this perspective. If you're, if somebody who is physically malnourished, they don't have enough body fat or, or muscle mass, and you ask them to run a marathon and they haven't trained, they haven't done anything from a standpoint of, you know, uh, being physically active or eating well, their body cannot train or run that marathon. So in a similar, you know, aspect, somebody mentally who doesn't have the neurotransmitters to feel, to process, to regulate, to control, they don't have that capacity. So when we do treatments like this, we're giving the patient the, those tools to be able to feel, process, control, regulate. And we're talking about serotonin specifically, right? Increasing our mood and how we feel overall. Dopamine, talking about more reward gratification-based types of feelings. But with serotonin specifically, we're talking about mood regulation as well. And with Ketamine and TMS combined, that neuroplastic environment creates an environment that's more conducive for neurotransmitter traffic to go back and forth. You know, I talked about this little frontal cortex, right, with TMS. Let's kind of just talk about that for a second, because with ketamine and TMS both, what ends up happening is we're giving this part of the brain, which is the frontal cortex, the logical control it's supposed to have. This is your logical, rational, intellectual part of your brain. This is the part of the brain that tells you when you're sitting in the car, I want to put a seatbelt on. Or, oh, that there's potholes on that road. I'm not going to drive through that, right? Or, you know what? Logically, I know exercise is good for me, so I'm going to go up and go for a run. And we're giving that part of the brain more of that control to kind of be the captain of the ship. I always say the limbic system, which is more deeper into our midbrain, that's our emotional motherboard. That part of our brain essentially does what? It controls our emotional regulation. So that's the crew of the ship. We want to give that part of the brain some attention to, but we want the captain, the frontal cortex to control the ship. So to, to answer your question, what we're seeing with both treatments is we're giving patients more of that logical processing and more of that emotional regulation due to this increase in neurotransmitters. Is it is it possible? I mean, you're making you think like uh, that fight or flight and being this triggered space versus being regulated space where you can actually be rational. Is it, is it possible to hit a threshold of, of generating that glutamate and to be able to be in that space of regulation versus the other? That's a good question. I, I would say, you know, if you think about where we look at medications, we do have a certain limit in terms of dosaging, right? Because how much of a, of a chemical uh, influx of something do we want versus having an adverse effect or a side effect profile? The thing with TMS is the side effect profile is so minimal. So I, I can truly say from my experience, that too much TMS is never going to hurt somebody from what I've seen. Again, everyone's different. We have to make sure that, you know, the people that are being treated have the right treatment plan. 
Um, but as far as hitting a threshold, I know with ketamine, there's only a certain level of how many IV treatments we can do, right, to elicit a response. Um, Spermato is a little bit different. IM can be a little different. You can have some booster sessions. But to answer your question, it depends on, e on, each, on each end. With TMS, there is not necessarily a limitation on number of treatments. Obviously, it becomes a practical discussion of how often someone should keep doing this versus how much money the insurance is come or shelling out of the patient is shelling out, um, how much time the patient's spending on this. Not, and if the patient's not seeing improvement, what is the patient not doing? So it's more about a collective understanding of is the patient making the right choices or the patient not doing what they're supposed to do? And not, are, we, are we doing treatment again and again for that reason? Or circling back to you know therapeutic index, have we maximized that? And it's very different with TMS and ketamine both. I think with TMS, we can say there is not necessarily a limit. With ketamine, there obviously is. Got it. Got it. Okay. Very interesting. What, what is the actual expected uh, commitment to treatment from both TMS with, and ketamine? Yeah. So with you know the time frame in terms of the overall window that you're in treatment for TMS and ketamine can be very similar, six to eight weeks on average, right? But as far as the frequency of how often you're in treatment, again, TMS, we're doing something in terms of neuromodulation, but we're doing it every day for a half hour per day for six weeks or five days a week, if you will. The reason is we understood, um, and this is when the data really spoke volumes, was that if a patient can undergo X amount of TMS treatments, there's a significant response. We found out the average of the population that responds to TMS responds between 30 and 40 treatments. So that became our sweet spot. 30 and 40 treatments makes sense. There's a certain number of the population that responds at 40 plus treatments. A certain number of the population that responds at less than 30. So, but the average conventional, you know, public in terms of them responding to TMS was between 30 and 40 treatments. So that's every day for a half hour. And here's how I told patients, you know, to justify that time um, was, look, you don't go to the gym for two days and say, I got my workout in. It's a consistent level of making sure you're in there, you're hitting the weights, you're doing what you're supposed to do. At the same time, we want to create that repetitive pattern in your brain of feeling happier and getting better at feeling better, getting better at feeling more redirectable of your thoughts, getting better at feeling less anxious and practicing it again and again and again. That's why when we talk about TMS, there's different types of TMS, right? There's repetitive TMS, deep TMS, theta burst TMS. But the idea conventionally behind all these treatments is the repetition of the pulses being delivered is to create that repetition of the muscle memory of your brain to practice being happier and getting better and better and better at it because unfortunately what our brains have done when it comes to depression is normalize that level of activity and we've practiced being depressed and we've gotten really good at it i always tell patients you have a phd in depression all kidding aside right now we're trying to get a phd in being happier is there is there is there a for a patient that's breaking through right i guess that default state that they put themselves into repetition as you're breaking through, like, is there any sort of pain? Um, I would imagine discomfort while they're in treatment. Um, as they're breaking through that the normal base that they put themselves in through being depressed. That's actually a, a really good question, Sebastian. I appreciate you asking that because we don't talk about this enough. Um, I think we should definitely, you know, mention it. When patients undergo treatments that can be activating, it can sometimes bring things up to the surface. Sometimes what ends up happening is that some patients, when well, this is from just my experience, I've had patients undergo TMS and during their course of treatment about two, maybe two, three weeks in, they're like, you know, I was feeling really good the first week and now I'm kind of feeling a little bit worse. And I'm sure a lot of TMS providers have heard that TMS 
community has heard that. What does that really mean? Why is a patient having this relapse of symptoms after having some benefit after the first week or two? Think about what's happening in the brain. We're starting to process more. We're starting to communicate more. The brain's starting to connect the dots more. And what ends up happening in mental health disorders, we sweep things under the rug. And now we're lifting that rug up and we're going through and we're cleaning everything out. So what ends up really taking place is we start to acknowledge some of the things that we have kind of put away in that little hippocampus region of our brain where we have short-term, long-term memory, things that we haven't processed in terms of trauma, pain, grieving, loss, whatever it is. And that's why I really emphasize the importance of counseling that's integrative with ketamine or TMS because your brain's starting to make connections. This applies to ketamine as well. Your brain starts to process more. To have this distorted sense of detachment from your body during ketamine treatment sounds exciting, but the the the, the experience that you're having during ketamine is that isn't actually the treatment. It's what happens afterwards, those days and weeks after. Your brain starts to connect the dots more. So in terms of pain, to answer your question, Sebastian, it's not necessarily pain, but it could be this uneasy type of change neurochemically that's taking place. And it's like, wow, I kind of see my depression a bit more face-to-face now. I always told patients this, it's like, we're doing TMS, we're doing ketamine. Depression was, you know, kind of walking alongside you and sitting on your shoulder saying, I'm here, I'm never going to leave you. And now we're face-to-face with it, Mm. targeting it head on because now we have the power to do so. We have the power to acknowledge it, recognize it, and target it. And that can be, and that can be tough. That can be tough. It can, it it was hard for a lot of patients. I mean, nobody likes change. So here we have someone that's, that's finally getting better and their brain is coming up against these specific things that have been shoved under the rug, understandably, which makes you think over the conversation we've had in the past around integration and being able to have the proper tools Sorry, treatment to be able to integrate the journey so that there is a sense of empowerment versus disempowerment through it. Right. Yeah. How about the use of both treatments? Can they both be used combined? That's a really good question. Um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't advise combining them just because it's a lot on the brain and the patient. And from practicality standpoint, I just think, you know, it, it, it wouldn't make sense um, financially, fiscally, scheduling wise. Um, and, and clinically speaking, I think you're, you're creating this kind of you know, too many chefs in the kitchen type of approach. And that can also give you a bad result too. So I would advise against that. Now, have I have have I had pati- patients that have done ketamine and do TMS afterwards? The answer is yes. I've had patients do ketamine even post-TMS. So you can do one or the other before or after, just depends on how much time. If you're doing IV ketamine, you know, you know, obviously want to avoid doing treatment the same day or that, that same week if, if, if for that matter maybe holding off and having a treatment plan focused on the ketamine first, seeing what your response is like, and then looking at TMS. I think, you know, one thing at a time makes sense. I, we have this, you know, consumerism mentality of do as much as you can, take as many pills as you can. And, and I don't think that's going to be the ideal way to go about it. And because this is more neuromodulatory based treatment that's effective, you know, it's not like we're just taking medication. We could take Zoloft, Lexapro, and Abilify at the same time. We can't just take three, four meds and do three, four treatments at the same time. There is a lot of neuromodulatory effects taking place. And we want to make sure we do not interfere with that neuroplastic change. You could be hitting a peak, getting a response with a patient. And then you tell them, and that patient does ketamine on their own. You could potentially kind of reverse some of the the change. You know, it's like literally jolting your brain with too much of a workout. You don't go to the gym seven days a week and work out for six hours a day. And for those that do, that's just insane. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> like that's, yeah, 
doesn't work. Yeah. It works the same way. I mean, it makes sense because like I think about it from a business perspective, there's always a lot of diminishing returns. You could be doing something that at first starts to be supportive and then it actually comes back and hurts yeah. instead of creates. Makes perfect sense. 100%. Perfect wow. So actually, I mean, this is 1910, neuromodulation first comes around, 2008 gets cleared for depression. Now here we are 2023, we have ketamine being used in the past before with heads first. Now here we are using it and having a massive difference in regards to neuroplasticity and being able to learn. Where do you see both of these treatments going in regards to mental health treatment in the future? I think that we are going to see a shift in the cultural attitude towards psychiatric treatment that's going to favor treatments like TMS and ketamine. And I think that eventually we're going to see this legislative change in how the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, um, the FDA, and how, and how they approve, advocate for, and, and push for uh, these types of treatments, I think what's going to happen is that mental health is going to see a, a, a shift in, in, a, in a cultural standpoint, and it's going to see a shift in a general sense of what the public thinks is the right thing to do. We are coming out with more public education Dr. Google is there for us to help us out. So we will all research, you know, all these things. But I think that that shift in, 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 in cultural attitude and then providing patient-centered care and improving coordinated care is going to be on us as providers, and that's going to improve too. So I, I do see that happening, and I'm very excited for that. Ooh, me too, man. Me too. This makes you think of at one point, we as humans thought that the planet was the center of the universe. Then we realized we weren't, and it shifted everything. This conversation makes you think that we're kind of going in a similar direction when it comes to how we treat mental health. Literally. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Well, Dr. Gordon, thanks a bunch. Appreciate you. See you soon. Appreciate it, Sebastian. Thank you.